You are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. James Millier is a British designer working in the fields of industrial design, branding, packaging, visualization, and UX and UI. A keen observer of human behaviors, he has been interested in unusual solutions to common problems for as long as he can remember. Since founding the studio Blonde in 2015, he's worked with a variety of clients looking to disrupt their respective industries. Today, we're going to talk design with James along with some of his work and outlook uh, onto the future. So thank you very much, James, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so can you tell us who you are, what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Three sentences or less, hey? Okay, challenge. Um, we are a industrial design agency based in central London. We primarily focus on industrial design, or we, we do uh, have offshoots of that, like visualization and um, UI and branding, which you've already mentioned. And fundamentally, as an agency, we focus on bringing a really deep-rooted narrative to the products that we produce and focus on a very high level of quality as well. So when did you figure out that you wanted to become a designer? Good question. I think I fell into it. I think I was kind of attracted to being a graphic designer like at school. Mm-hmm. And not feeling anything more than just being relatively superficial and thinking it was quite a cool profession. And seeing that, you know, wearing suits and, you know, doing something um, that is maybe not conventional in this sort of academic sense. And then as I went through the school process, I uh, started to realize I enjoyed making things and bringing 3D objects to life. You know, your DT lessons and things like that you have in the UK. Um, I don't know what you call it in the US or in Canada. Um, and then I went to university with the intention of being a BSc engineer, basically, so product engineer, um, design with engineering focus. Did a, a foundation course in engineering past surprisingly um maybe not surprisingly and then realized though at the end of that that you know it wasn't really for me it was it was too technically focused as much as I really enjoy the technical element I'm much more I'm much more driven and um drawn to the creative side of of industrial design so I mean it was a really lucky and fortunate path that led me to the the creative industrial design profession so we Let's talk a bit about design in in more general terms. We hear a lot about the idea of good design. uh, And I personally have an opinion on what that would be. What is good design in your opinion? Big question. Um, A good good design fundamentally has to consider sustainability. You know, when we're talking about designing 3D products, which we do all the time, um, Inevitably, these things have a lifespan. 
Um, so as an industrial designer, you have to consider sustainability in everything that you do. That's the first thing. I mean, almost frustratingly, entering design awards recently, I've noticed that there's always a category for sustainable design, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be a category. It should. It shouldn't even be, you know, a separate topic. It should just be embedded in every single one of the other categories. Um, so that's the first thing. But to achieve that, maybe it's not always um, just about the materials you use. Sometimes it comes down to how you actually manage the aesthetics and ensuring there's no aesthetic obsolescence that you know it's designed into something. So not not following trends. And that's a big thing for Pond and my agency. We uh, don't necessarily follow trends. Um, I mean, obviously, we're aware of them. Um, you know, we don't, you know, uh, intentionally disregard them. We just are not drawn to them or follow them in a, from a creative point of view. We design things uh, and embed kind of an aesthetic and a narrative to our products that uh, is really driven by the, the the user's requirements, functionally, aesthetically, and from that, you, you naturally get a. Um, a product that has uh, inherent longevity to it because it's useful and aesthetically it's not going to go out of date. So for me, that's, that's a good product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. that makes sense. I, one of my favorite uh, product brands is OXO. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yeah. They do good work. And uh, while their products are pretty cheap, both in terms of price and quality, um, meaning that, some of them eventually end up breaking, but um, I find myself going back to it because they're so well designed in from the perspective of like the user experience and how they fit in your hands because they're kitchen utensils, right? Um, so I, I think a lot of uh, the qualities you've described are in products like that. Um, so when you start designing a product, like, you know, you, you're given a brief, uh, how do you go about making sure that all the things you've described are, are part of it? And um, what are some of the challenges you face when you're you're coming up with a new product for a client? It's interesting to circle back to your first point um, that you mentioned OXO. So you work with one of their, their biggest competitors here in the UK, maybe slightly larger, called Joseph Joseph. We designed a water bottle for them recently. Have a, um, I would say, a very similar stance and benefits that their consumers you know they're always looking for a usp that is actually beneficial it's not just a gimmick it, you know really does solve the problem um and so working with them has been really enjoyable because they have a, a certain synergy uh, i think in the way we approach work but to answer your second question it depends upon the client it depends upon the brief i mean every brief is so different um sometimes you can get a paragraph from a large corporation and 20 pages from one one certain client and the first thing you need to do is to sort of really, really define what the brief is and, and sort of collaborate on that first of all there's a lot of things that's something that you know people don't necessarily talk about they talk about doing the design work but sometimes just collaborating on the brief to an extent is a is a really important step really understanding what the client wants and whether there's any way to make it better and to increase the business strategy or increase the way that we manage to um, benefit the user. From there, what we would do is look to conduct with everything we do, depending on budget, obviously, it scales up and down, but a holistic bit of product strategy um, and obviously research and primarily before that. And that allows us to identify uh, market opportunities from a commercial sense, but more importantly, um, functional requirements 
and often functional requirements that the user wouldn't know they even had um, that help us answer problems and create a really meaningful and useful product. And so a big part of design, both industrial and I think in any other area of uh, design, architecture, interdesign, graphic, is really to uh, take the brief, kind of study it, do your own research, so to speak, and see if you can come up with maybe a better brief or better solution to the client's problem. So mm -hmm. that's pretty well understood by designers. Do you ever walk away from a client because you don't understand the brief or the brief doesn't uh, mesh with what your firm's about or you always try to uh, maybe show them a different way or a different path or maybe a, an entirely different solution? All of the above, actually, to an extent. We would never, I would never walk away from a brief to understand it. We always make sure that we understood, first of all, before walking away. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we've turned, we, we regularly turn down work. Um, just yesterday, we turned down work for a vaping product. I mean, um, I don't know, for us as an agency, none of my staff and me would want to be involved in uh, anything nicotine related. Um, mm -hmm. That's the first thing, that's to go with the studio and what you know everyone's happy working on. You've got to think about your staff as well as overheads and you know just your general morals. Obviously, it's been a quite a fortunate position like we are to be able to turn down work like that, um, which is generally quite, quite highly paid. Um, we will turn down work you know, after collaborating on the brief, if it looks like, if we think that it's not going to be successful, actually bring benefit or have a reason to exist, that's the big one. You know, if it doesn't have a reason to exist, essentially it's, you know, it's purely commercial and just for financial sake. We've turned down a few projects eventually after sort of fleshing out the brief for the client because it is clear that, you know, it will potentially be landfill waste in a year or so's time and um, sold cheaply um, and just to make, to make money primarily. Um, unless it has some kind of drive behind it to to better human existence or make life, people's lives easier, better or easier, then we wouldn't necessarily take it on. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so can you speak a little bit to maybe your design heroes? Who are the people you respect, uh, both in the industrial design world, maybe outside as well? I've been asked this question before, and is it maybe a cliche answer, but I've always enjoyed DC Rams' work and mm -hmm. still do, um, particularly from a, an industrial design point of view, particularly after you know, Jonathan Live and the Apple team were heavily inspired by his work. He's been popularised and almost a household name, I guess, but he is still influenced to, to some extent. There are several studios that have been operating for 20 plus years that I respect and a continual output of good quality work. Um, and then outside the industrial design world, or maybe crossing between industrial design and architecture, I've always uh, enjoyed the likes of Van Jacobsen and um, Bruno Minari. Um, just from a design thinking point of view um, and their ability to be able to create long-lasting objects like really elegant analog objects um, that will always be enjoyed for generations yeah and, and it's interesting what you say about long-lasting objects that don't become obsolete and you've touched on that a couple of times throughout this conversation um is it seems like that's a common thread across your work, but um, are there other kind of 
design principles or a, a kind of philosophy or common threads that um, you can talk about that are very important to you? Uh, could you provide an example potentially? And then I will. Uh... Uh, well, similar to what you just said about obsolescence, designing objects that, you know, people will enjoy for a long time and not just discard because two years from now, it looks like it's out of date, right? Or it's been replaced by the latest gizmo. Um, so maybe, maybe to reframe that question, like speak about uh, if you have any kind of principles that you can lay out that you have written down or your philosophy about design and kind of how you approach each project. There's three main principles that make up what we call uh, conscious design. Um, these are, first of all, we would say that every product needs to be useful. So it should be, um, have a purpose and a positive impact on the user's life. Um, if it's not useful, you know, what's the point of it existing? Mm-hmm. Second, needs to be deliberate. So no detail is superfluous. I think you can see that in our work. Everything's been stripped back. I quite often say to designers when I have design reviews, I am... Um, you know why uh, do we have these like three separate details in this one product can we split it across um, and make sure that there is a particular meaning for that detail existing and I think that bestows all the work that we do with a uh, minimalism which is not intentional from an aesthetic point of view but actually from a design story and narrative point of view and then thirdly um, we like to think of it as aware So um, it needs to fit within the world we inhabit, and not just designed for today, but designed to be passed down and, and enjoyed by future generations. So again, touching upon the point that you, um, the reoccurring theme of the podcast so far. I, I'm personally fascinated with objects that are designed predominantly because of how they function. I'm thinking about, you know, um, cameras or motorcycles or cars there's room for a bit of design but by the way of because they function a certain way and there's um you know when you use a camera the shutter is always more or less in the same place and you hold it more or less the same way there's some paradigms that you can't really change or or it would might be too disruptive to people's the way people use the object to change what's your what's your thought on that and and um can some of those principles be applied to maybe less functional objects that have a little bit more room for design itself? Because um, I'm, I'm always fascinated, like I'm a photographer, so I, cameras are, oh, no matter what brand you use, it's always kind of the same way. Um, and I understand why, but I'm, I'd love to hear your take on that. And there's a couple of elements that I guess define that. <clears throat> Um, one, what people are used to, mm-hmm. um, what functionally just absolutely works. Uh, there's a thing in industrial design, people say, um, no one's been able to successfully design, redesign the umbrella because it's so perfect and everyone's so used to it. There's an element of that, I guess, to those, those things. Um, Also, maybe there's a kind of industry standard that people are worried about disrupting, maybe. Most of the c- controls on the cameras are the right. Is that, is that correct? I mean, what percentage of the world are right-handed? Um, there's still a 
fundamental sort of concern about taking especially on some of the you know the larger more analog cameras the more professional ones are taking analog controls and making them digital um i think to, to it's going to be quite a disruptive product to rethink something like that that's been exactly the same for what 100 years so um yeah. and and there are a few examples i mean the iphone is the obvious one where you took something that had a keyboard and a tiny screen and then you turn the screen into the keyboard and then kind of completely change the paradigms but those those are pretty rare right, it seems and mm. once uh, something start working it's more of an evolution than because uh, fundamentally if you take a car it, it's working the same way it has for 120 years it's evolved obviously it's more elaborate and more complex but the the basic driving experience is basically the same So that's that's always been fascinating to me. And I wonder if someone had to invent the car today with today's technology, if it would be completely different or if you'd like had a blank slate, which is not going to happen, obviously. Those I wonder whether it's just the car though. And if you had a blank slate on the way that the infrastructure worked, as in the roads and the, and the light systems and the roundabouts, then I think it'd be a very different thing. But the fact is that you're even these brand new electric cars, you're seeing that, you know, look very conceptual, but they're actually existing, which is exciting. Um, you're still pinned in with the same restrictions, right? The Tesla's yeah. got a floating iPad, essentially, and nothing else, which is amazing, interesting from mm -hmm. a design point of view. They're still constrained by exactly the same parameters in terms of safety and, and road infrastructure. Yeah, because you have to contend with the same infrastructure. You have a very good point. Um, so is there a project of yours in particular that you're the most proud of or um, that kind of stands out? There was one recently. It's actually the brand I've already mentioned in the podcast, uh, Joseph Joseph. They're kind of uh, uh, similar to Oxo you've also the, mentioned. The water bottle? Yeah, that one... Particularly, I mean, it's a very, very difficult space to innovate in if you're not just sticking technology in something. Mm -hmm. I mean, people have put, you know, LEDs and, and like uh, UV cleaning elements in water bottles, which is arguably um, innovative and useful, but eventually will time out and break. I think we always try to find some analog solution to, to a problem or we know that we find. But first of all, I think actually being able to identify a, a, a opportunity in a space that's been so heavily occupied um, was really successful, I was very happy with. We actually did a lot of observational research. We asked people about water bottle, people are not going to say, oh, have deep thoughts about their water bottle to an extent. So we um, went out into London just before the pandemic and took a couple of days just observing people using water bottles. And what we, were found, what we found was Um, people on their phone had the water bottle in their hand, newspaper, and they're kind of like struggling with this cap they've taken off. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just found this opportunity to try to somehow make the cap less of a thing that could be lost or could, you know, um, just be an extra thing you have to hold in your hand. So from that observational research, which I'm the largest advocate of, um, as opposed to interviewing one-on-one -on -one or even, you know, on a, a bigger scale, we were able to create a, a method where the cap just slides over the neck of the bottle and then stays there once you drink. So also has the benefits in terms of um, hygiene storage. So, you know, if you take the cap off, slip it over the neck and store it inside the cupboard, you're not going to get the smell, you know, when it's being contained and sealed. That 
I'm particularly proud of, and even more so proud of it that people don't recognise it. It kind of it goes slightly unnoticed, which from a commercial point of view is a bit frustrating. There needs some messaging to sort of show you that you can use this function. But if we manage to create such a great USP and it not be screaming at you, then that answers all of the blonde ethos, everything we've been trying to achieve. And even though it's just a simple water bottle is probably the thing that I'm most proud of because of that. That's interesting. So how do you go about doing those observational studies? Like where do you go to observe people using drinking bottles? That's a very interesting question to me. Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of spying, isn't it? And um, obviously you don't want to take too many pictures because it's not, you know, <laughs> it's a bit strange. But yeah, we went out to London, the, you know, the underground tube, um, particularly where it's hot, central line. And it was, luckily it was summer. Um, so we saw, you know, people carrying water bottles constantly uh, you know typical sort of uh, tourist hotspots in london like trafalgar square and the tate museum and um uh, and various other places in london and just i sat there and observed basically took a couple of tube stops sat on some benches watched people going about their lunch break with their with their reusable or non-reusable water bottle and just how they were carrying it how they're using it how they're drinking from it um yeah so you basically get paid to people watch. Basically, this is a great job. Hey, that's amazing. Um, so you you've alluded to that in the in the talking about the bottle, like the the uh, use of technology and in industrial design, and I think that's a great segue to uh, talk about more uh, uh, how uh, big tech or how tech in general, sorry, is. Um, is getting used in industrial design and how do you see that uh, looking in the future? It's a difficult thing to respond to. I think there's some exciting opportunities from an industrial design process with technology and how you present your work to clients, you know, augmented reality and VR. Um, from a product point of view, um, there are some great opportunities for us to be able to, you know, uh, better the world we live in, especially with, you know, for example, EVs and um, electric transportation and mm-hmm. um, e-mobility in general. What would be maybe a dream project? Maybe there's an assignment that you've thought about uh, that you'd like to get, but you haven't gotten a chance to. What, what would that look like to you? I'm a, uh, a furniture designer by trade. So mm-hmm. I actually have a degree in furniture design. And I think actually a dream project now would be some expanding our, our furniture portfolio. So a desk chair, you know, something that really benefits the, you know, the ergonomics of, uh, and benefits just the way that people sit and their posture and general ergonomics of, of working. Um, that would be an absolutely lovely project. That would be a dream project. Uh, also, because it's relatively large, you know, when you run an agency, small projects, as much as they're really fun, you know, it's nice to have a long, large project that, you know, takes a while to develop and you can really get your teeth sunk into. Um, that, and then my answer is always the same. I mean, I've asked, been asked it one or two times. Um, as an agency, I always ensure that we have a variety of work coming through the door. I mean, we've, we've designed uh, within the same month coat hangers and refrigerators and air conditioners and glass Tupperware. Um, so the variety is really important, I think, just to ensure that everyone is 
on their toes and interested and every day is different for them um, and enjoy getting into work. And so the dream brief is one that's different to the previous briefs, um, yeah. which is a slightly non-answer, I suppose, but um, it's true. So. It's a very designer answer. Yeah, um, one of the last questions I have for you, it, it's a bit on the lighter side, like uh, where does the name Blonde come from and what does it mean to you? On the lighter side, but it has a long answer. Um, yeah, I, I had a podcast a couple of weeks ago and um, apparently the, the person did lots of question asking for the audience beforehand to say, uh, what was the, what are your questions for James? And it was the main asked question, apparently. I understand why. I um, I was looking for names for a long time um, and I did lots of workshopping sessions with my friends and I was trying to create this name that had this meaning and the way that, you know, we bring design details together and, and there's some process we're looking to adopt as an agency. And the first, well, the first name that I landed upon, I thought that's it, was a name called Cohesion, right? It was Cohesion. And I thought, we both thought that's it. That's it. We found a name. Um, uh, the person I was working with at the time is actually recently come back to the business. Um, and we went to bed and woke up and we'd both forgotten what the name was. So it was quite evident that that wasn't the name yeah. um, because it wasn't memorable. So from there, I was on a quest to look for something memorable. And in doing so, I was thinking about lots of different um, band names or company names or anything that sticks out in my head. And there's two that always stuck out in my head, uh, which were Acne, which is a clothing brand, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, not a band I like, but I remember their name for some reason. I'll think about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and after, I was trying to Do analyze you know what the Red Hot Chili Peppers' first name was? No, 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 go on. Uh, so if I remember correctly, because it's a bit long and complicated, it's the Miraculously Majestic Masters of Mayhem. I, I did know that. I did know that. I, w- I was a big fan of their first couple of albums, particularly Californication. So mm-hmm. I had heard that, I think. Yeah. Um, interesting. It's much better than Red Hot Chili Peppers, must admit. <laughs> More memorable. Yeah, yeah. It's mm. it's probably a, a bit too punk, maybe, for their for what they're doing now. Yeah, maybe. Um, and so, basically, I was analysing those, and, and I thought they were really interesting case studies, because you don't think about the actual chilli pepper, when you think about Red Hot Chilli Peppers, you think about the band. And, mm-hmm. you know, and likewise, with acne, you don't think about spots. Um, again, I'm not sure how much that probably should, but I think it's a French band. I think it means something else in French, maybe. But anyway, you think about the really beautiful bits of clothing they make, um, particularly if you know the brand. Uh, and therefore, I was looking for a name that, you know, stuck out in people's minds and they remembered. Equally, it needed to have some kind of meaning. Um, I came along, I came up with the name of Blonde, basically based upon the colour of wood. So being relatively unobtrusive, not shouting some kind of longevity to it aesthetically, as you've noticed, that's a running theme. And then also the added fact that it has this connotation of hair colour, which does make people smile and almost, you know, laugh basically at you. Um, because of that, it doesn't get rem- uh, forgotten. I always give this example um, of when I was completely validated. I went into the room with LG UK one day. It was like really early days when I first started the company. Mm-hmm. And one of the design directors said, as soon as you walk through the door, I think it was even before a hello, um, I expected you to be wearing blonde wigs. And he was, you know, he was taking the piss completely. Um 
fine though, justified. But I, at that moment, as much as he was taking the mick, I knew that we'd, you know, found a name that people would remember and ask about you know, as part of um, the joy of it. Do, do you do you go to meetings wearing blonde wigs? <laughs> no, because that <laughs> would be that would be a great icebreaker if you were it like would. a. Um, uh, a, what is it called a bob cut or you know this kind of like really straight chin length um, hair um, with yeah. uh, with bangs that would yeah. be hilarious yeah you call it bangs don't you yeah, yeah. um yeah that would be funny <laughs> no i don't know um and then i mean yeah the reasons are slightly less interesting mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's it's funny how uh, a good name keeps on giving you new meanings over time right yeah yeah that's that's how you know whether you've picked a good name or not if you keep coming up with new uh new meanings for it um one of the last questions i have to get back uh, to a slightly more serious topic um what are some of the lessons you've learned from being a successful industrial designer that you think could apply to architecture and interior design the running of a business probably I think that, you know, that crosses everything from all aspects of creativity and beyond. Um, and starting a company, some of the lessons I learned early on maybe could transfer across, obviously, looking to start an architecture business, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I started it with no clients and the portfolio. And I took a £15,000 loan to uh, basically fund six months plus of mortgage repayments and hope that I would I'd get some work um and my advice to people would be to take more if you're going to take a loan because that was naive and that was far too little yeah um, but to go for it and that's the way to do it is to add that pressure you know obviously there was a big risk there but I had to make it work there was a and I, I always had this um uh sort of relatively scared of public speaking even doing this kind of thing I'd be I'd be quite nervous I mean um throughout my whole life and then during those first six months when I have had the ticking pressure of the financial side of things as much as I probably lost a bit of hair in the process I all those barriers that I want to worry gone suddenly I'll stop being nervous talk to people trying to get work doing these kinds of things and So I would, some of the biggest learnings I've had is just to, um, if you want to do it, you want to create your own business, just do it, take the risk. Um, But maybe give yourself a little bit more of a a buffer than probably six months worth of (laughs) overheads. And so how long was it until you got your first job? We were really lucky. I think we got one within the first, well, it had a very small one right at the beginning within the first couple of days, but then I think the, the the big one came within three or four weeks. Um, wow, that's, that's pretty fast. I had been building a, a website and I'd incorporated the company a year before when I was working full-time and every single weekend I've been building a portfolio, albeit conceptual. Um, so it wasn't starting completely from scratch. I had something to to hit the floor running with. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, that's all for the questions I had today. Well, thank you very much for having me on and thank you very much, everybody, for listening.
Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.